Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, our guest is a compulsive gambler uh, who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Michael to the show. Hi, Michael. Hi, Bill. Michael, yeah, you've been on the show before, actually 2019 and 2020, so I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. The last time we chatted, we talked about, I think it was uh, in July 2020, just, well, I think we just entered the second uh, lockdown in Melbourne uh, for COVID. But I thought if we start off, do you want to give us a quick recap of your, your gambling just to um, set the scene? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I'm uh, 55 years old. I can't say I was a uh, committed gambler from the teenage years. I, I grew up in a household where um, uh, sort of punting on animals, you know, horse racing and that sort of thing was not really the done thing. In fact, it was kind of looked down upon as a bit perhaps uh, low class. Uh, my parents were migrants. Um, they would meet with other migrants and play cards. And so I grew up watching them you know, and considered that the card playing was a social thing, was a friendly thing, part of socialising with people. But I, I never really gave it another thought. I mean, like many um, families, our family played the, the weekly lottery and, uh, you know, was uh, occasionally had dreams of, of, uh, of you know, winning the, the top prize, but, but really nothing that could be considered problematic until later years when my first marriage was breaking down. And I guess in, in retrospect, as a, as a person, I was not a particularly mature person and hadn't really learned to deal with uh, emotionally stressful situations. So when my first marriage was breaking down, I don't even know why I did it. I turned to um, the pokies. I, I sort of uh, decided to go to a venue and just to kill the time and sort of block out my thoughts. And it was very effective. And I won big that first time I did it. And that absolutely set my neural pathways. You know, I discovered what I needed in terms of numbing out my feelings and being able to avoid having to think about my situation. And of course, like all addictions, I guess, the solution quickly became a problem in and of itself. And, and uh, you know, I found myself skiving off work to go to the casino, playing blackjack, uh, playing pokies, playing, uh, you know, other games there. I would often go in, you know, with, with a, a really strong view that I would limit my spending and, you know, I would, <laughs> despite having that view, I would sort of hit the ATM you know, three, four or five times in the space of a few hours and then literally walk out with nothing. I mean, there, there, I remember lunch times when I would go from, from work, I would go to the casino and I actually remember times when I thought I've got to leave myself enough for a dim sim and a bag of chips right, for lunch. And I couldn't even do that. So my control was absolutely shot to pieces. Uh, I had no control. And the way I sort of got found out or caught was an intercepted uh, credit card statement. My wife picked it up and opened it and had a look and she was horrified. And, and uh, you know, there were tears and recriminations. And the first time that happened, I went to Gambler's Help and uh, that didn't really work for me. The counsellor was well-meaning but um, suggested that, uh, you know, I had an option of trying to abstain or trying to control my gambling and and, and I ended up back gambling again very quickly, got caught a second time, and that's when I got to GA, uh, and that was in 1998. Do you want to just go back to the um, gambler's help? Can, can you just talk us through 
you know, what their advice meant to you at the time? Well, see, I didn't think I had a gambling problem. I thought I had a, a, a money problem and a getting caught problem. And, and I, I didn't want to stop gambling per se. I still wanted to self-medicate, psychologically self-medicate in, in that way. I just wanted to be able to do it without losing you know, every dollar in my pocket and without upsetting the missus. And this is, I think, where the option of trying to control my gambling was, was very uh, attractive. You know, it meant that I could keep doing what I was doing without looking at the whys uh, of why I was doing it, trying to control and manage the symptom, you know, which was the gambling, uh, instead of trying to, to look into why was I gambling in the first place. Yeah. So how long did you try to um, just control your gambling? Oh, it would have been less than six months. The interesting thing was that, you know, sort of before I got, uh, I was caught the first time, we had separate finances. Uh, as a result of getting caught, we did set up joint finances. So, so there, was, there was absolutely no way that if I was gambling again, I couldn't get caught, right? If, sorry, if I was gambling uncontrollably. Yeah. And in fact, um, that's exactly what happened. So even though, I guess the interesting thing there is that despite the knowledge that I would get caught, that knowledge and knowledge of the consequences of what that would mean still was not enough to stop me from doing it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, um, just that recklessness of, that the gambling induces uh, in you. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a complete abandon. And, and I think maybe you know, thinking about it now, I, I, I think part of, if I think of my gambling specifically, which was really an escape from dealing with things, you know, and kind of perpetually kicking the can of having to deal with reality down the road. I, I think, again, the same thing with, with the, the prospect of getting caught. I knew it would happen intellectually, but I just didn't want to deal. I wanted to kick that down the road. And, uh, and so that's what I did anyway. Yeah, interesting thing, isn't it? So what was it that caused you to think about going to GA then? Well, I, I knew that at, at that point, you know, when I'd got caught the second time, I knew that I was about to lose my young family. We had an 11-month-old. Uh, you know, we had only been married for less than 18 months. And I thought that that was all at risk. I was suicidal. You know, I, I was totally not present at work, really, um, not effective. So that was at risk as well. You know, really everything was at risk. I, I was on the cusp of losing everything and, and I thought, well, I had to do something drastic and dramatic. Clearly gamblers' help and counselling hadn't helped at all. And I thought, well, you know, there's only one option for me and that's just to not do it at all. Yeah. So how did you find out about Gamblers Anonymous? Coincidentally, where I was working at the time, that organisation employed counsellors for our clients that for the clients that we had and I'm talking sort of uh, sort of social counselors and I uh, when when I got the phone call um, from my wife it was during the work day and I just went into that guy's office the, the counselor and I sort of broke down and, and I told him what had happened and he suggested gamblers anonymous to me so what was it like going and meeting other gamblers because gamblers typically, although, you know, the, the TV advertising is different, gamblers typically are very, very much loners. They do it, gamble on their own yeah. or problem gamblers, I'm saying. So what was it like going and meeting all these other gamblers? Uh, it was remarkable, actually. I mean, my very first meeting was on a Monday night in Carlton and, uh, I don't remember a lot of detail because I, I, I the, the one thing I do remember was was that I was crying through most of it, you know, sobbing through most of it. But uh, but what I what really stuck with me was this overwhelming, welcoming, warmth, uh, care, understanding, you know, total absence of judgment, and for the first time in a long time, I felt hope. And uh, it was quite remarkable, actually. I, I will never forget that feeling. You know, it really gave me hope. I was in the pit of despair. And then 
somehow these people just understood. You know, I, I mean, trying to explain it to my wife why I was doing these things, because of course, all addicts get asked why, why, you know, and especially with gambling, people just stop, just don't go, right? <laughs> it's, and it's hard to articulate what that compulsion is like and why you just can't stop. And and those people all got it. And so it was it was really good. And in hindsight, it's funny because I've come to realise that you're right, a lot of compulsive gamblers, it's all about the isolation, not just from one another, from family, from friends, from work, from, from everything. And that the cure, or not cure, but the treatment is really connection. GA is all about connection. Yeah. That's the thing. And you get a lot of benefit from reaching out to other people and being involved in helping them to understand the problem as well. It's You learn a lot from helping others. So how much has that influenced your recovery, being involved with others and helping others? Oh, hugely, hugely. It's one of the things I really love. A number of years ago, oh, I think it was 2016, we had restarted the Burke Street meeting. We'd have over the years a few attempts at having a city-based meeting. And I thought, oh, well, you know, let's have another crack. And uh, we started that up. And, and I felt so energised by kind of taking that on. Um, I think it lasted for about oh, 15 months before it, it sort of faded again. I mean, I don't know, for some reason, people don't want to do lunchtime meetings in the city. It interferes with the gambling. <laughs> Well, well, yes. And, you know, it's funny because that's exactly what I thought. I thought if we give people an alternative, but anyway, look, for whatever reason, it, it didn't really work, take off, not in the numbers we kind of needed. But in this last year with COVID and lockdown, I took on for most of last year, well, from March to the end of last year, I was chairing two Zoom meetings a week. And I did not find that an effort at all. Absolutely the opposite. In fact, it totally energised my recovery. I feel that I've done better last year and was more able to cope with what was clearly a difficult situation for a lot of people, and it would definitely have been so for me in the past, but I was able to cope with it quite well. I, In fact, in the first month, I said to other uh, GA members, uh, I felt that I felt I had been in training for this moment, you know, for that, that whole really heavy situation, that I'd been in training for it, you know, and I felt, you know, or like almost like a, a soldier trains for war, you know, they, they hope they never get it, but when they do, they're prepared, you know. I, I felt that in my recovery I'd been training for hard times, quote-unquote, you know, and the hard times came, the really you know, hard times. I mean, there was a period last year I was unemployed, didn't have a lot of prospect of, of getting work. Uh, we were under full lockdown. But doing the, um, the, the two meetings a week, during the two meetings a week, and then picking up the sponsorship of, um, of a person, an interestingly uh, Korean gentleman who, who came onto the Zoom meetings, and that was one of the other wonderful side effects of having the online meetings is that we... We got an interstate and a, an international audience as well. So, so it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And, and uh, I feel uh, blessed to have gone through it. Not that I would wish to be in lockdown again. <laughs> don't, don't take it the wrong way. No. <laughs> no, it's funny, isn't it? A lot of people enjoyed it and a lot of people hated it because it offered different things to different people in real terms. So it was a very interesting time, that's for sure. So how did the groups cope? with lockdown and being on Zoom. Did you feel that people sort of embraced the, the Zoom sessions? You know, it's really interesting. There was um, a lot of people did. And even the ones that were initially sceptical, many of them did. But there were also many that didn't. You know, one or a few that tried and they just couldn't, you know, it didn't work for them for whatever reason. Uh, and, and plenty that didn't even try to get onto the Zoom meeting. So there was definitely no middle ground. I mean, people either really loved them. And, and in fact, it was interesting to see a number of people jump on and increase the number of meetings they were doing a week. And we had a number of, uh, quite a number actually of new members join who had only ever joined, known 
the online meetings, had never known the physical world meetings. And, you know, they were doing probably more meetings a week than would have been the case had they started coming to face-to-face meetings. So that was an interesting observation. But, but with the people that's, um, that, that had been coming to meetings, some for many years, who didn't turn up, I mean, a few of those have now started popping up again uh, now that face-to-face meetings are opening, and that's still an ongoing thing. But some haven't. Some haven't. So, look, I mean, every person's journey is their own, and, and we can't control uh, what others do. But uh, I, I'm glad that a bunch of people really did uh, latch on and enjoy the meetings online. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so we might take a short break there. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate yeah, community radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people of the people. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Uh, today I'm talking with Michael and we're talking about compulsive gambling and about his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Michael, before the break, we were talking about online meetings and sponsorship and the fact that I think you said you had a, um, a guy who joined from Korea. So do you want to sort of tell us a bit about what it's like to sponsor somebody over, over Zoom internationally? Sounds interesting. Yeah, it, look, it, it, it is. I mean, I, when he asked me to be his sponsor, uh, and, and this fellow, I should point out, is quite advanced in age. He's a, a retiree. Um, he'd had a very high level career, um, you know, had worked in America and, uh, you know, his journey took him through a number of kind of failed attempts to manage his gambling through psychologists and counsellors. And, and in the end, someone uh, had recommended Gamblers Anonymous and he jumped onto the meetings and he somehow found our meeting, um, the Victorian region Zoom meeting. I mean, language wasn't too much of a barrier, you know, for him. His English is pretty good. Online, obviously, quality can vary, as, as you know. But, uh, you know, he was doing okay. But I think, I don't know, maybe because I was chairing the meetings, he reached out to me and he, and he asked, because he had heard other people talk about sponsorship and you know, get a sponsor, uh, he asked me to be his sponsor. And I, I must admit, I was a bit sceptical only because, well, two reasons. One, one I thought, uh, am I ready to do this? Am I ready to take something like this? So I'd never sponsored anyone before. And then I thought, well, he's overseas, will only ever be able to meet online. Is this going to work? You know, how's it going to work? And I, I said to him, look, let's provisionally try and we'll sort of meet for a, a, an hour a week. And I set aside an hour a week to meet online with him. We would have a, like a Zoom call. You know, I got the sort of literature and, and we started. And it's like um, teaching, I guess. You know, they say that uh, if you teach something, it's the best way to learn it, you know, to embed that in yourself. You know, the teacher learns as much as the student. And, and 
I honestly felt that. I really, in trying to explain things uh, as we were reading through and working through uh, the book, I, I found that my own understanding actually improved. And to be honest, the online aspect of it was kind of neither here nor there. By this stage, I think we'd, I'd been doing six months or seven months worth of online meetings. And of course, for work, because I was then back in work, I was doing plenty of online meetings. So it was kind of second nature by that stage. Yeah, it was sort of normal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you know, you'd have sort of Zoom uh, coffee catch-ups and and sort of, you know, Zoom chats with your mates and Zoom birthday parties for people. So so it was it was normal. I mean, you know, it didn't always work, but in this case it actually it actually did. And you know, I sent him some material um, by the post and, and some electronically. And, and you know, we, we're we're working at a pretty slow pace. You know, an hour a week isn't much. And and uh, the guy is eighty one, so you know, I've got to give him some some benefit there. But uh, you know, the amazing thing about his story is that after thirty nine years of gambling and really doing quite significant damage. And of getting to an age of 81 where, you know, I mean, a lot of us know people who are older that gamble and it's very hard to discuss it with them or kind of change their behaviours or mindset. The fact that he was willing to do, to try this and that it's made an impact on his life and the quality of his life and the quality of, of his relationship with his missus, you know, that's pretty remarkable. And he actually, I've told him this, he's setting a great example for people who would other might otherwise think, oh, it's too late for me, I'm too old, you know, I've been doing this too many years, I can't change now. But the, the reality is there is no time limit to change and there's no, it's never too late to get some good years under the belt. And by good, I mean emotionally stable, happy, sane, you know. Yeah, I think everybody, everybody knows an alcoholic, but they don't know that they're alcoholic. And I think the same thing with gamblers. A lot of people know gamblers, but they just don't know they're gamblers. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point because I I also know somebody who's post 65, who's gambled a lot and has a problem, but won't, won't talk about it at all. It just changes the subject. So being willing to, to talk to somebody about it is really important. So was this Korean gentleman, had he been to GA in Korea or was going to Zoom the first time he'd been to a meeting? No, he had tried going to uh, Korean GA meetings, I think, a couple of years prior. Yep. Look, I, for whatever reason, mate, probably because he wasn't ready yet, you know, he hadn't obviously suffered enough or he, maybe he just wasn't you know, willing enough, because that, that open-mindedness and that willingness are absolute precursor requirements. You know, you've got to be open-minded and willing when you come into a 12-step program. But uh, for whatever reason, it didn't really work. I, I asked him, I've asked him about it on a couple of occasions, and, you know, it just, he, he felt that he couldn't relate to the people there. And maybe because um, of his advanced age, maybe because of the fact that he, was quite a, you know, sort of a senior career person and had worked in the States for many years and all that sort of thing. So for whatever reason, he felt he couldn't relate to those people. Now, you, you might ask, well, why did he relate to a bunch of Australians of much younger age than him, generally, you know, on, on, on Zoom? And, and I can't answer. I, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, I've never been to a Korean GA meeting, so I can't tell you what the differences are. But, uh, you know, fortunately he did. You know, he saw something and he has stuck around. He keeps, he does his one meeting a week and uh, we're still uh, working through the steps together and, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it reminded me of another story. I was working with some Indian guys uh, in IT and they were fairly young and they came out to Australia and they were working on this project that I was working on and one of them went back to India for a holiday. Uh, his family were trying to get a wife for him and he um, he came back and he he said he was telling his friends that he would have lunch with this old guy which was me and that you know I was happy for him to be there and have lunch with him and his friends just couldn't believe that because that just didn't happen in India it was you know very hierarchical that 
based on age, and maybe that's the issue. Could be. That just being able to cross cultural barriers means that you can break down a few other barriers. That's actually a really good observation. That, that hadn't occurred to me, to be honest, Bill, so I'm, I'm glad you've, you've given me that thought. That, that may well be the case, may well be the case. Also, the other thing that I was interested in talking about was just the, the difference between addictions, I guess, or compulsions and sort of the nature of compulsive behaviour because a lot of people, I've spoken to people who have food addictions and one of them had an alcohol addiction as well and she basically, she sort of used alcohol to stop eating and when she stopped using alcohol, her eating got out of control. And so each one was just an attempt to resolve an issue that was an, an underlying issue. So what, what's your take on the, I guess, the similarities between the compulsions that become addictions? So, you know, what, what is gambling most like? Well, look, I, it, it's, it's funny because it, it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, there are clear differences, that's for sure. Gambling is probably more like overeating than it would be than, than say, alcoholism or, um, or drug addiction, you know, or addiction to other substances, in the sense that you're not actually taking a substance that has a direct impact on your brain you know, and, and its workings. Now, clearly, all compulsions do have an impact on our brains because the thing that they do have in common is that you know, we do all of them without regard to the consequences that we know are there. I mean, intellectually, there isn't a single addict out there that doesn't know what the consequences of their addiction are. Every single addict is aware of the damage that they are doing to themselves. Uh, that, I, I have no doubts about that at all. But the, the remarkable thing is that we do it despite that knowledge and despite you know i mean uh people will say things like oh you know think of your family or think of your your partner or think of your children you know think of your mother and and even though that's a fair thing to say because often the people we're damaging are those people they're the ones that hurt the most as of a as a result of our uh, behaviors and despite the fact that we love them and we don't want to hurt them, we still do these things. And that's whether the addiction or compulsion relates to a, a mind-altering substance or not. And, the, and I guess that the commonality there, even for the alcoholic and the drug action, the drug addict with, with a, the compulsive gambler and the overeater, is that the decision point before you take the substance, before you place the bet, before you eat the food, that decision point, you know, at that point, you, you, you don't have a substance in you, you know, you haven't done the thing, but that desire is so overwhelming, it will literally just trample your rational mind and trample all thoughts of loved ones. And even though a part of your mind is saying, don't, don't, you know what's going to happen, you know how bad you'll feel, you still do it anyway. Now, that's, I mean, I'm not a, you know, a, a brain surgeon, a, neuro, a, a, a neurologist or, a, a you know, a, an expert in, in, in the workings of the mind, but there's clearly something absolutely consistent uh, across all the compulsions there. And so it's understandable to me that someone might try to manage one perhaps white-knuckle it a bit and manage to sort of forego doing that addiction, but then we'll kind of let it out in another way because they're not necessarily treating, as you say, the underlying symptoms. And, and, and I think that's why the 12-step program kind of works across addictions because as a program, it's not about... I mean, there are, for example, if I look at the, the GA 12 version of the 12-step program, there's very little in there about tips relating to stopping gambling per se. I mean, we do have some things like, you know, don't go in or near gambling establishments or whatever. But when you read steps like, you know, uh, do a moral inventory, 
you know, or accept your powerlessness over your addiction or handing your, your life and your will over to a higher power. Those things are common across addictions and they really, I, to me, they relate to a sort of a treatment for the soul and, and a way that they introduce a way of life that takes your mind out of that mode where you need to escape or damage yourself in order to avoid dealing with things, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's the concept of hope. It's it's the fact that something else can help you where you can't help yourself. So the hopelessness is that I can't change it myself. And the hope is that something can change me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think there's another aspect too. I mean, uh, if I look at myself and my own sort of history with uh, my addiction and my recovery following that, the big difference is that when I was sort of before my recovery, I felt as if not only I could control my environment and myself, but I felt that I had to. I had to be, we live in a society where if you can't control your situation and, and be effectively a little the king of your own castle, that there's something wrong with you. It's a failing, right? Uh, and so, you know, we have this sort of individualistic society where we uh, promote people who can kind of do things on their own, achieve on their own, uh, you know, to the extent in some cases where we're leaning on others and needing help um, is considered, well, a bit negative. You know, it's, it's not seen in a, in a very great light. Whereas in my recovery, I actively seek help. I know that I can't do this on my own. I know that I have to take myself off the pedestal, right? And I think, you know, one of the things, just, just to, as a quick sidebar, one of the things about the, the concept of a higher power in 12-step programs is that really the point of that is that you're not the higher power. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to believe in it. It could be the group. It could be a God of your understanding or whatever it is, but it's just not you. And that's the important thing. You know, I'm not omnipotent. I am not um, the decider of all. I don't get to you know, decide how the universe is and how other people around me behave. I just need to control my own reactions and my actions and cope with everything else and learn to cope with everything else. Yeah. And it's about not being able to control the first thought, but being able to consider the first thought yes. comes into your head. You don't have to act on it. Whereas I think prior to getting help, most people, if they have the thought, follow the thought uh, rather than go, well, wondering what, what's it going to be? Um, there's no ability to consider maybe there's a different path, that I've got a choice. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I myself, you know, I've said to people kind of half-jokingly that, that if my brain comes up with an idea that sounds really, really good and enticing, it's probably coming from a great and not, not a great place and I should probably do the opposite. That, that sounds like a bit of a gag, but, um, you know, it's true. I mean, often... You know, I struggle with procrastination. I struggle with motivation. I'm trying to get fit at the moment, lose a bit of the COVID weight. And motivating myself to get out of bed in the mornings to sort of do my exercise is a, is a struggle. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, you know, my, my brain tells me, oh, just lie in here for another 15 minutes, you know. And so usually I, I force myself to kind of do the opposite. You know, it doesn't always work. You know, I'm, I'm a work in progress, but, uh, you know, and, and, and I guess that comes back to one of the things, again, that's also common with, with addicts is that the behaviours and the compulsions and the whatever it is in our brains that drives that, that circuitry, um, genetic predisposition, whatever it is, it's still there. It's just that, you know, we've created, um, hopefully, through recovery, new neural pathways and new options for responses we don't have to go down those other neural pathways we can choose to do something different you know which will lead to a different outcome and a different um, mindset yeah that's thinking about that thought and thinking about the consequences of the thought and what that might do 
Okay, well, listen, we might take another short break there. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Michael about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Michael, uh, before the break, we were talking about, I guess, choices and the chance that people have to do things differently. But is it difficult to reach people who gamble, who are not so much in denial, but sort of don't know they've got a problem? You know, at, at what point did you, I guess, consider you, you had a problem yourself before? you got found out about your gambling? Oh, I, look, I knew I had a problem probably for about a year before I got found out. And I knew because of just how compulsive my behaviour was and, and, and how no matter what sort of self-roadblocks I tried to put in my own way, I would always take the same path. I'd, I would always dismantle those roadblocks and just charge on through and keep going. And of course, it, it's funny in, in the sense that just like what I imagine would be the case with uh, substance-based addictions, once the fog lifts and your rational mind comes back, you, you realise what you've done. You realise all of it. You, know, you have full rational awareness. There's no trace of the compulsion in you at that point, but it's too late. And the thing is, the fact that you don't have a trace of that compulsion in you at that moment, and you know you can swear black and blue on your tr- children's lives to the God of whatever you believe in, you can swear black and blue that you won't do it again, and yet you will. And I knew because I was going through that terrible cycle again and again, you know, on my own and in silence and not really appreciating that there was any alternative I, I knew that there was something wrong with me gambles anonymous or, or, or anything like that hadn't come into my mind I, I didn't know that that was an option I, I can't say I had had really considered it uh, and certainly when I got to GA it was effectively I was kind of compelled to you know and I won't say I was forced to but I was you know compelled by my wife to like well you better do something about this right, or else it's over. Uh, so, I, you know, I didn't seek it out. But uh, sort of having gotten there, I guess, you know, when you get to a hospital, it doesn't really matter, you know, how you got to the emergency. You know, you're there, you're bleeding, and uh, you start getting treatment and you start feeling a bit better. Yeah, that's right. Just just the thought of getting better um, improves you. So I, I guess the, the scary thing about gambling or stopping gambling is that, what will you put in its place, you know, in real terms? You, you've dedicated a lot of your life to this activity and you you probably think you're pretty good at it, but it's something that you're going to have to stop. So is that a bit of a, a scary thing, thinking what you'd replace it with? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's definitely a void because 
you know, I can't speak for, for the other addictions, but certainly with, with gambling, you spend so many hours doing it and so, so much time thinking about it and then planning on doing it and scheming on how to, you know, get money to do it. It really is quite all-encompassing. And, and then when you remove that and you replace it with, you know, a couple of hours of meetings a week, well, that still leaves a lot of free time. And, and uh, it, it is scary. It's scary for a number of reasons. One is boredom is a big kind of trigger uh, for a lot of people. So, so having free time is not necessarily a great thing. But also you're kind of alone with your thoughts. And that's often one of the reasons that people seek out these sort of behaviours is because they don't want to be alone with their thoughts. I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. And so you've got to kind of attack it in a, in a couple of ways. I mean, the program is, is part of that, but it's not going to sort of, you know, occupy you 16 hours a day, right? So, so you do have to find healthy things to do. Now, whether that's throwing yourself into work initially or, uh, you know, taking up new hobbies, sports, fitness, whatever, you, you've got to absolutely find something to do because if you're in a situation where you're bored for many hours a day, that is a, a really, really dangerous place to be for someone who's early in their recovery. Yeah. So also talking about um, family, so you mentioned that your wife was a, a major force in you seeking help by giving you an ultimatum. Is that something that families can do with, with gamblers? Because most gambling or drug addictions, people tend to isolate a bit and they tend to lie a lot. And so families are pretty much in the dark about what's happening unless they see the behaviour and a lot of it's hidden. So is there anything the families can do you know, in real terms? Yeah, look, it, that's, a, that's a difficult question. Uh, and it's, a, it's difficult for a couple of reasons. One is every situation is different. You, I don't know that there's a blanket rule. I mean, if I look at the fellowship I'm in, there are people there that are still with their partners and, and still with their family who was with them from before they came in to, to afterwards. And, and many of those people say, oh, I couldn't have done it without them and so so lucky that they stuck by me. And there are also many others whose you know, partners left or their families broke down before they came in, and, and yet they still did and, you know, and try to sort of make amends and perhaps have improved the relationship with an ex or with children, um, you know, not always, but, but uh, you know, sometimes. And, and so I, I don't know that there's something universal that a family uh, can do. But the second reason why I think that's a tricky question is because those people are not just there to aid the addict. They're not sort of, you know, props in the addict's life. They, they are their own individuals, uh, human beings with their own lives. They have to protect themselves and, you know, make sure that they get to live the best life they can. And in some circumstances, for those individuals, that may mean leaving. And for others, it may mean trying to help the addict. And I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. Um, for those addictions where there is um, the, um, you know, like Al-Anon and uh, there the used to be in a, a Melbourne meeting of Gammonon, which, which are basically the 12-step programs for family and friends of, of addicts, it, which is really, it's not about how to help the addicts, it's about how to help themselves and to be in that situation as best as they can, whatever that means for them. And I think, you know, it's important that, that, that people seek out that help for themselves. And if that can help the addict, that's great. But, you know, addicts should not be relying on, on other people to try and make it right for them. We have to make it right for ourselves. And I think everyone has to make their situation right for themselves. Yeah. So a lot of trust gets burnt in a relationship with lies and deception and, and gambling is probably one of, the, one of the major ones that triggers those, those feelings of lack of trust. So how did you rebuild the trust with your family? Look, the, the, the bottom line is that or I didn't control and I couldn't control 
whether trust was giving back, when it was giving back, uh, to what extent it was kind of uh, rebuilt. You know, I accepted that as difficult it may be to, to realise that, you know, a year into recovery or two years into recovery, there are still circumstances that trigger distrust. And, and I can honestly say, I, I wouldn't even sometimes, I wouldn't even know that explicitly, but I would visually see a response, whether it could be a kind of a, a raising of eyebrows or a sort of a, a tone of voice that to me indicated that I wasn't being trusted about something. And to be, and to be fair, part, part of that was probably my own. So I was so sensitive to the fact that I had done all these things and that I wasn't trustworthy that I still felt as if I was being kind of judged in every sort of interaction uh, or, or, or in some interactions, you know. And, and, and the irony is, and I'm sure a lot of addicts can relate to this, you know, I would get asked in the early days things like, oh, what did you have for lunch at work? And there are many times when I would lie. And don't ask, don't ask me why, honestly. I mean, what that has to do with compulsive gambling or recovering, I, I couldn't tell you. But I guess the, the habit of lying to cover up what you've been doing and not telling the truth was so ingrained that sometimes when you get this sort of unexpected question about something inconsequential, the automatic response is just to respond with a story. You know, you were a bit late. Oh, yeah, uh, car broke down, had a flat tyre. I mean, I, I can smile about it now. But I guess, look, the, the overall message is you can't control whether or to what extent people will give you trust again. And you know what? We just have to live with that. It just is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, talking with an alcoholic and she'd, um, she had a daughter and she was uh, doing something in the kitchen and I think they had a party or something and she reached for a glass of soda water <clears throat> and it was wet on the outside and slipped out of her hands and broke on the bench. And her daughter immediately rushed outside because she felt her mother must have been drinking. To do that, she must have been drinking. Yeah. And it was sort of overwhelming for her. And, you know, just for, you know, for the daughter to realise that it was just a slippery glass, it wasn't her mother drunk again. Yeah, sort of shot it home to her how much, how much impact it has on other people. Absolutely. And how you can't control that impact. So how did it affect your marriage? Well, look, I, I consider myself one of the incredibly lucky people whose partner stuck with them. And the way I sort of tried to make amends is by being, you know, totally honest about what I had done, about why what I was thinking. And, and I, I, I had asked my wife on a number of occasions, whenever we would sort of talk about the past, I, I, and I would say, why did you stick with me, right? You know, I mean, what did you see? You know, her response was, well, I saw a good person, you know, and so it was worth, you know, fighting for that. And, I mean, that's, that's very humbling because often we don't see ourselves as worthy we often feel as if other people judge us as unworthy. And to hear something so lovely said about you uh, is incredibly humbling because that's certainly not how I viewed myself. And so, I, I look, I'm incredibly lucky. I guess to answer your question about how did it affect my marriage, because I, we were still only together for a short time before I got to, to GA. I can't say for a fact, like, what the difference was afterwards. You know, we, we hadn't sort of established many years of, of a pattern to then see it change. I know because my journey over the years uh, led me into recovery and then I actually sort of walked away from the program for a number of years before coming back. And so... My journey has impacted the family because in those years when I was sort of away from the program, you know, and my kids were teenagers um, or young teens, I probably um, emotionally impacted them. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say that, that that was a bit significant. But, you know, 
the best thing we can do is to be a better person today. It's the difference between guilt and shame. And I, I acknowledge what I've done. I feel guilty for it. And my guilt motivates me to be a better person today. Whereas shame, you know, I, I, I believe now that I do have a good heart. So what she saw in me all those years ago, saying, oh, you're a good person, I now see that as well. And so I, by no means perfect, but believe me, I, I'm still a work in progress and will be till the day I die. But it's a motivator to do as best as I can and be the best person I can be today. And each day is its own day, you know, and some days are better than others. And some days are worse than others. But uh, each, each day is an opportunity to strive for hope. And, uh, and that's the difference between today and you know, 20 years ago, 23 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. If anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on 03-9696-6108 or go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Michael for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature Inga, uh, who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org dot A-U. A 3CR supporter.